Hello, and welcome back to another installment of the Come Follow Me Bible Challenge, where I, Jeremy Howard of Orchard Hills Bible Church in Payson, Utah, follow along with the curriculum schedule for the Come Follow Me curriculum, which is made by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I just follow along with their schedule and offer some thoughts as a Bible church pastor. And uh, boy, it's really, really hard to (laughs) try to cover this because each week there's so much. For example, this week, uh, where is it on my schedule up here? We have on the docket Matthew 9 and 10, Mark 5, and Luke 9. So if this were to be a, a full comprehensive study, this would take hours. But uh, even as it is, where I'm just picking one passage out of multiple chapters, it's still really hard to limit uh, what I'm saying uh, to something that's just listenable and and hopefully helpful. So we're going to give it a shot today. (laughs) And uh, we're talking about the transfiguration. Looking at the transfiguration from Luke 9 today is what is in front of us. And uh, we need to start off with a refresh about who Jesus is. That's really important as we begin uh, this endeavor, because at the Transfiguration, we have this amazing event where we see Jesus's nature revealed in a way that doesn't happen in other times in the Gospels. So let's remind ourselves, do a little refresh on who Jesus is. Well, um, According to John 1.1, which I did an episode on, Jesus is God. He has always been God. Now, he is uh, said to be with God in that verse, but also that he is God. So there's a distinction of persons, yet this unified essence, a singular being There's but one God, uh, the Apostle John, of course, being a uh, Jew who upheld the Old Testament uh, and became a Christian, um, an apostle of Jesus Christ. He certainly believed in monotheism. He he didn't entertain the idea of, of multiple gods. You don't find that in the Old Testament. You don't see that in... Uh, the writings of the apostles, there's only one God. Yet, you have this idea that there's a distinction between Father and Son, and then Spirit, too, of course. So this is the doctrine of the Trinity, that you have Father, Son, Spirit, each being referred to as God, yet there is only one God. So John 1.1 1, 1 is a great place to start with that. You can also look at John 17.5 that I've mentioned before, where Jesus is praying to the Father in his high priestly prayer, as it's come to be known. And he asks the Father to glorify him with the glory he had with him before the world was. We know that God will not share his glory with another. So that means God has this unique glory, this distinct glory that is utterly unique to him. Yet Jesus said he shared in that glory, and he's asking the Father to glorify him with that glory. And so again, you get this idea of one God, yet distinction in persons. And then there's also Philippians chapter 2 which we haven't looked at, I don't think, in our studies so far this year. Uh, We'll eventually get to Philippians. Um, Let me just do a little... I I can't do a look ahead because of the way my schedule is set up. I'm wondering if Philippians, if not only the whole book, 
is scheduled for one of the weeks coming up uh, later in the year. But I think it might be paired with other books. Like it might be Galatians and Philippians or Ephesians and Philippians together one week. And I have no idea how I'm just going to do one episode on that. Uh, Because of time constraints with my life, I can't do more than one episode a week. So I don't know what I'm going to do when we get there. But we'll get there and we'll figure it out. Anyway, Philippians uh, chapter 2. This is verses 5 through 7. Paul writes to this church saying, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. So uh, what I want to highlight in this moment is that Jesus, past tense, existed in the form of God before he came to earth, he existed as God. There's a pretty plain statement that Jesus is God, okay? Yet he didn't use that deity to his own advantage, didn't use it for selfish, prideful, sinful, evil purposes. But instead, he chose to empty himself and took the form of a bondservant, okay? Lots and lots to say about that. I just discussed this in my Sunday school class from this past Sunday, where we're talking about Jesus is truly God and truly man, titled the hypostatic union in Christian theology. This is a central passage in that discussion. But we know from these verses I've talked about so far, Jesus is God. Very clear. Well, Jesus is also man. Because he came to earth and was born of a woman, he was conceived in the Virgin Mary, And he was born, he took on a true humanity, not a facade of humanity, but a true humanity. And the Word became flesh, John 1, 14 says. So you got John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. Eternal existence as God is what you're seeing there, the Word eternally existing as the one true God. Then in verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Wow. And you even have that idea here in Philippians chapter 2, that he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. This doesn't mean he ceased to be God when he became man. He did retain his deity. However, um, his deity was veiled while he was walking the earth in flesh. He emptied himself, it says in Philippians 2.7, meaning that there were certain expressions of his divine attributes that were nullified in the flesh, that were made of of no use in the flesh. Uh, For instance, there are times when we see Jesus's omniscience and his omnipotence. It says in the Gospels that he knew men's hearts, like knowing what was in their hearts, Jesus said X, Y, Z. Well, how can you know what's in somebody's heart? You need to know all things. So uh, it even says in the Gospels that Jesus knew all things. So you've got this idea of Jesus knowing more than any creature could ever know. You have his omnipotence or his all-powerfulness on display in his miracles. How can you take a little bit of bread and a little bit of fish and feed 5,000 people, right? How does that happen? Um, you know, it's because he is all-powerful. And so we have these attributes come forth. Yet there are also times when the exercise of certain attributes is nullified, where he does not exercise these divine attributes, like when he says, 
about his own return, nobody knows the day or the hour, not even the son, but the father alone. Okay, well, that's pretty, that's a pretty interesting statement, right? You, you got to figure out how that's possible. If he knows all things, how does he not know that? Well, because apparently he willfully did not exercise that divine prerogative about knowing that, okay, at that time. That's just kind of where you got to land. Uh, we also know that uh, Jesus got hungry. He grew tired. Well, well, how does an omnipotent being get hungry and fall asleep? Well, it's because he took on true humanity, and in his humanity, he did not exercise all of the divine prerogatives that he had uh, and still has in his deity. So you got this interesting dynamic going on where Jesus is truly God and truly man, and you have his deity shining forth in some instances, and then you have these other aspects where uh, his humanity is emphasized and he is not exercising certain aspects of the attributes he retains, uh, divine attributes that he retains. Another example is that when Jesus walked around on the face of the earth, he wasn't shining as bright as the sun in unapproachable light. It says in the New Testament that God dwells in unapproachable light. Jesus said that he was in the glory with the Father before the world was. Why wasn't he shining in this unapproachable light? Well, because his glory was veiled by his humanity to an extent. Well, we are tiptoeing up to this passage now, (laughs) the transfiguration, where that veil gets pulled back a little bit. And this glory that Jesus has is exposed in a way that it's not exposed in other times in his ministry. And he is making his glory more evident in this event to three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John. And he's transfigured before them. Uh, It's an interesting uh, term, to be transfigured. We call it the transfiguration, but I don't know how often we dwell on what that word means. The word means to transform, to change in shape or appearance. Uh, The other Gospels that record this, Mark and Matthew, use the word uh, metamorphosis, or at least one of them does. I'd have to go back and find out which one, but you get this idea of metamorphosis. Uh, That's a Greek word that we use in English. No, we know what it means. Luke doesn't use that word, but of course he gives the same idea, just meaning to change or transform in appearance. All right? So with all of that review, let's now, now that we're 11 minutes into this, let's uh, consider Luke chapter 9, his account of the transfiguration, starting at verse 28. Luke 9, 28. It says, Some eight days after these sayings, he took along Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face became different, and his clothing became white and gleaming. And behold, two men were talking with him, and they were Moses and Elijah, who, appearing in glory, were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, Peter and his companions had been overcome with sleep, but when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. And as those, or and as these were leaving him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. 
not realizing what he was saying. While he was saying this, a cloud formed and began to overshadow them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. Then a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and reported to no one in those days any of the things which they had seen. Wow. So you can understand how there is no shortage of things to say about this passage. Well, um, let's just consider some observations here. Let me just consider a few observations. I've made notes that are over here on this screen. And uh, again, I don't want to drag this out to be like a two-hour lesson, so I may not hit on everything as much as you want me to, but if you have any thoughts or questions, feel free to contact me, okay? Well, um, let's consider what what's happening in this transformation. We see it in verse 29. What is being transfigured? Well, Luke says specifically that it was the appearance of his face that became different. Hmm. Now, that's just an interesting way of saying that, isn't it? The appearance of his face became different. <laughs> Probably because this is so otherworldly, it's so strange that this is just how you have to say it. His, we were looking at his face. The disciples are reporting. Luke is recording. We were looking at his face, and it was just different. And we know that this difference was having to do with, uh, whoops, having to do with brightness and color. His clothing became white, it says. And in one of the other gospel accounts, it says whiter than any person who bleaches could ever bleach the clothing. His clothing became super white, the whitest you can ever imagine, and gleaming. The Greek word for gleaming here is dazzling, just really bright. It was shining with a lot of light. So this is symbolic of of deity and purity. You know, you think of white and brightness. We have in the New Testament the statement that God is light, right? So there's this connection to divinity, deity. Uh, These are symbols. And it's talking about the glory of Jesus Christ, or, or it's denoting, rather, the glory of Jesus Christ himself. It says in this passage that they were seeing his glory, so they were seeing Jesus's glory here in verse 32. So Jesus is being revealed to the disciples as the glorious one, as one who is the Son of God, the Son of Man, two very loaded terms that have a, a deep meaning. That's who Jesus is, and that's what's being revealed in this change of appearance. We also see this cameo going on, <laughs> a cameo of sorts. In the next verse, it says, Two men were talking with Jesus, and they were Moses and Elijah. It doesn't tell us how they figured that out. It doesn't tell us what Moses and Elijah looked like, other than they were appearing in glory. So a glorified image of Moses and Elijah. Uh, now, what is this image? Are they in actual bodies, or is it just a spiritual appearance? It doesn't say how how this is happening in a physical description. It just doesn't give us that. Now, it is interesting that these two men, Moses and Elijah, are two men who 
did not have known graves. If you remember in the Old Testament that God buried Moses, and uh, Jude gives us some insight that there was a little fighting over the body of Moses. That's really interesting. Elijah was taken up into heaven. He was caught up or raptured. So they have very interesting deaths that were unlike other humans. So that makes this quite curious, doesn't it? Because here they are showing up at this point. Um, Elijah specifically, who's mentioned here, was prophesied in Malachi chapter 4 to return before the day of the Lord. I did an episode on Malachi chapter 4 at the end of last year, so you could check that out, where I talk about that more in depth. Well, here he is at this point. Is this his return? Um, There are different ways to consider that, but this is talked about in Malachi chapter 4, the last part of the last book of the Old Testament that Elijah would return. Moses, of course, is the founder of of the nation. That's kind of how he was viewed, the founder of the nation Israel. Not the father of the nation, that's Abraham, but Moses was the one that God chose to lead them in the Exodus to uh, get them to the precipice of entering the land. It was through Moses that Israel got the law, and so he was like the founding father, you could say, of Israel, um, getting them out of Egypt into their own place. So he had a very prominent role in Israel's history, and Elijah is a prophet. Moses, of course, was a prophet too, but Elijah was a prophet in a different way. He worked miracles regularly that, in a sense, prefigured Jesus's miracles. And he, because of Malachi's prophecy, Elijah is associated with the end times that Elijah uh, is going to return. There will be a returning of Elijah. So you got Moses, like the beginning of the nation, Elijah pointing toward the end times. Uh, How do we place those realities into this scenario? Well, that's kind of difficult because uh, you can make a lot of that. And it's really difficult in Bible study to keep yourself from making too much of the text when you're reading a narrative like this, especially. Because in a narrative, you just get the facts, right? The, The facts are here presented to us, and it's up to the reader to make the connections, to interpret it rightly. And I'm pretty conservative. Uh, The types of theological circles I associate with are pretty conservative with the text of Scripture in that we don't just take something and run with it because it it feels nice, okay? Feeling nice isn't uh, something that verifies or validates a biblical interpretation, or, ooh, it sounds really deep and spiritual, okay? That, that doesn't validate anything. And what, what sounds, you know, deep and spiritual, well, that changes from person to person. You know, my goal in uh, Bible interpretation is always to discover the intended meaning of the author. In this case, it's Luke. Now, there's the capital A author who has written all of Scripture, God, specifically God the Spirit. Uh, but each book has a human author, and they didn't turn into robots when they wrote Scripture. They were writing Scripture to a specific audience with a specific purpose, and my goal is to discover that purpose. And when the author, the human author, doesn't make the connections explicitly for me as the reader, I just have to be really careful that I don't go beyond what he intended. Because if I go beyond what he has intended, I go beyond what God has intended. Because I believe that God is the divine author and the human author, that their purposes were aligned in writing Scripture. 
I don't think that any writer of Scripture wrote things down and then stepped back and said, wow, I have no idea what that means. I think the human authors uh, understood what they were trying to communicate, and so we should understand what they were trying to communicate. So when we get to this passage, um, what does Luke intend for us to make of this, that Moses and Elijah were there? Well, he's telling us, again, the historical record. He's giving us facts of an event that happened. So it's not necessarily this idea that Luke is, you know, giving us the certain symbols that we would figure it all out in the spiritual realm, because Mark gives us these symbols, Matthew gives us these symbols, uh, and they're not symbols, they're just events. Moses and Elijah were there. And so uh, it's an amazing recorded event, and what purpose did God have with this? Well, we can wrestle with that, and we can come to some conclusions, but we just have to be really careful not to force some sort of interpretation of this onto Luke. We want Luke's intention to drive our thinking on this and not just come up with something because it sounds good. So what we can say for sure as we're considering why Moses and Elijah appeared here with Jesus, we can say, of course, with great certainty that Jesus Christ has a better ministry than both of them. Jesus is the better Moses. He's the better Elijah, you could say, that... uh, Jesus is the one who saves his people from their sins. Moses couldn't save anybody from their sins. Elijah couldn't either. And uh, and Jesus is just greater in every way. He is truly God, truly man. He's greater than them both. In fact, in Deuteronomy 18, uh, Moses said that there would be a prophet coming up among your fellow countrymen. He was talking to Israelites. There will be a prophet coming, and you need to listen to him. And that's Jesus. He prophesied that a greater prophet would come, and it was Jesus to whom, uh, or about whom, they were to look for, they were to uh, listen to Jesus, okay? And we can also understand this, with Moses being more of the founding father of Israel, and uh, Elijah being associated with the end, they're showing up as like witnesses to the centrality of Jesus Christ in God's program. Jesus is central to what God is doing in the world. The person and work of Christ is at the very core, the very center of what is happening in the world. So God is not going to save anybody apart from Jesus. God's program isn't going to advance apart from Jesus. Like God isn't building a church apart from Jesus. God isn't going to fulfill the promises he made to the nation of Israel apart from Jesus. God isn't going to exercise a kingdom on the face of the earth apart from Jesus. So you, you have Jesus being central. And I think something that we can say with great certainty here is that Moses and Elijah are present and they represent what God is, uh, has done and will do in his program, and Jesus is central. He is being revealed as the glorious one to whom we should listen, and he is central to God's program in the world throughout all stages of redemptive history. Okay? And, and this comes out in the text because you'll notice that as these, these men, Moses and Elijah, were appearing in glory, they were speaking to Jesus 
of his departure, which, we, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So they were talking to him about the events that were soon to take place at Jerusalem. They were told, apparently, by God uh, about what was going to happen, and they're discussing what's about to happen with Jesus. And they're speaking specifically of, this is Luke's phrase here, his departure, Jesus' departure. The word for departure is the Greek word for exodus. They were talking about his exodus, which is fascinating, isn't it? Uh, Moses, of course, is associated with the exodus, and there's Moses talking to Jesus about his exodus. They're talking to him about his death that was going to take place in Jerusalem, about his resurrection and ascension, where Jerusalem is central to that you know, whole, whole series of events. And in Luke's Gospel, as you continue to read Luke's Gospel, you'll see how he makes Jerusalem a central part of what Jesus is doing with his death, resurrection, and ascension. So um, they were talking to Jesus about his upcoming death and what was to follow that. This is just amazing stuff. It's just one little verse, but you kind of put your mind there and think about that. They were having a conversation about that. That is amazing. That is absolutely amazing. Well, um, (laughs) these disciples, man, I tell you, this is why we connect with them, especially Peter, so much. Because it says, um, Peter and his companions, that's James and John, they were overcome with sleep. So here you have this transfiguration event that's taking place. This is so amazing. And they're sleeping through the first part of it. Overcome with sleep. Like, really, guys? Are you serious? <laughs> you remember them sleeping in the garden, right? That's the end of the gospel where Jesus is praying in the garden, and he tells them that the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Uh, after he had told them multiple times to keep awake and they couldn't do it. Well, here, too, they're sleeping. And then they wake up, and it says, when they were fully awake... They saw his glory, the glory of Jesus, and the two men who were standing with him. And from this coming out of slumber state, Peter decides, I got an idea. And he calls to Jesus and says, Master, which is an important term, especially in this context. We'll come back to that momentarily. Master, it's good that we're here. We should make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses and one for Elijah. And Luke adds here at the end, and Peter said this because he didn't even really uh, know what he was saying. He didn't realize what he was saying. <laughs> now that's an interesting thing, isn't it? He he says, we sh- I should make tabernacles. It's great that, that we're here. Let me make booths or tabernacles. Um, strange, right? That's pretty strange just reading that for the first time and maybe not connecting it with other scriptures. Well, a couple things to point out. One is that he did have a a servant attitude here. I mean, it's pretty obvious that he was the lower one. Uh, Well, Peter, James, and John were all the lower ones here. You've got all three of the others, Jesus, Moses, and Elijah, in glory. And so they're there, not in glory, beholding it, uh, thinking, okay, we are um, not as high quality as these other three. <laughs> I don't know what a, I said that weird. Um, we are not 
uh, as great as these three. We're not in glory. They are in glory. And so Peter's mind goes to service. Let me serve you. It's a good thing that we're here. We, we can serve you. We're going we're gonna to do this thing for you. And I think that's a good thought. He, he wanted to, to serve them in this way. But tabernacles? Really? Like, why, why did his mind go to tabernacles? What is up with that? Well, uh, there was this feast in Israel that was called the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. And uh, this was a time when tabernacles would be constructed, and there, there's all kinds of ceremonious things that went on with that. But what's interesting is that we get in Zechariah 14, the end of Zechariah's gospel, and I did an episode on this too that you can go back and listen to, that in the future earthly kingdom, there will be a reinstatement of the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles that Egypt will even take part in this, which is wild to think about. But it will be reinstated. And Jesus had just said in uh, our passage today, Luke 9, verse 27, which I had been hiding from you this whole time. In Luke 9, 27, Jesus said, But I say to you truthfully, there are some of those standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. So surely as Peter, James, and John like wake up to this glorious scene of Jesus, Moses, and Elijah in glory chatting with one another, their minds go to what Jesus just said, that we're going to see the kingdom of God. And Peter here apparently thinks they're in the kingdom of God. And part of the promise of the kingdom of God, according to Zechariah 14, is that the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths will take place. And so that's why Peter it seems, says, it's great that we're here. Let's make these tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. But as good-natured and well-intended as this sentence was, Luke tells us he was not realizing what he was saying. And, you, you know, you can't really blame Peter. It's like, wow, this, I mean, except for the sleeping thing. I, I think we can blame Peter for that. Why were you sleeping, guys? Come on. But but Jesus had just said that the kingdom of God is coming. You're going to see the kingdom of God before you die, some of you. And they wake up to this. Well, that must have been it, right? Well, no, it wasn't. It was a preview of the kingdom of God. And I think that's what Jesus is talking about in verse 27, where he says that Certain people of the crowd, not the whole crowd, but certain people aren't going to die until they see the kingdom of God. And here, Peter, James, and John, they're not in the kingdom of God, but they are certainly beholding the glory of the kingdom of God. They're getting a preview, a privileged foretaste of what the kingdom will be like. Uh, But they still didn't realize at this time that Jesus is going to suffer and die. You know that the disciples, they just had a really hard time accepting that reality. And I don't think they grasped it yet. And so here at this transfiguration, Jesus hadn't been crucified yet, of course. And that's what they didn't realize. They didn't realize that God's path to glory goes through the cross, goes through suffering. Now, Peter learns this. If you read First Peter, especially chapter 2, he speaks just amazingly about suffering in this life and how if we are following Jesus, 
And if we are being conformed to his image, that means we're going to suffer too. And the pathway to glory is filled with suffering and trial. So he eventually realizes what he's saying, but in this moment, he's not realizing what he's saying. And as uh, Daryl Bach put it in his commentary, God's answer to Peter's proposal that he should build tabernacles is to actually make a tabernacle of a cloud. (laughs) While Peter was saying this, there was a cloud that formed. So God interrupts. I, I like this. While Peter was saying this, a cloud formed and began to overshadow them, and they entered the cloud. Now, this is an interesting verse because we don't know uh, who is getting overshadowed by the cloud. Who's this them here? A cloud formed and began to overshadow them. It could be all six of the men. It could be just one of the two groups of three. Uh, It could be Peter, James, and John. could be Jesus, Moses, Elijah. Hard to know. But when it says they were afraid as they entered the cloud, the they who were afraid, well, that's certainly Peter, James, and John. But were they afraid because they themselves were entering the cloud? Were they afraid because Jesus, Moses, and Elijah were in the cloud? Were they afraid because all six of them were entering the cloud? Mm, We don't know. We just do not know. But what we do know is that after this cloud enveloped them, a voice came out of the cloud out of the cloud. Interesting. Saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Chosen one, anointed one, Messiah. Okay, this is the the language of referring to the Messiah who was to come. This is an affirmation of Jesus's role as Messiah. And the voice coming out of the cloud seems sensible to say this is the Father. It's very similar to Jesus' baptism. When Jesus got baptized, he had something very similar happening. We can read about that in Matthew chapter 3. But we have this affirmation here that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Son of God. Uh, He is who he claimed to be, the one who can forgive sins, the one who was in glory with the Father. He's God's Son, God's chosen one, and they are to listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, it says. So Moses and Elijah, gone. And they kept silent, so now it's referring to Peter, James, and John, and reported to no one in those days the things which they had seen. Other gospel accounts Uh, tell us that they were to keep silent about this until after the resurrection. Um, So they they still did not understand what was going to happen to Jesus, but they were told by the voice from the cloud, God's voice, that they were to listen to Jesus. So um, as we reflect on the purpose of all this, (laughs) I mean, there are several purposes, right? But I want to boil it down to two. Um, What was God's purpose in having this event take place? Uh, Well, one, we could say uh, that Jesus's glory was to be displayed. The glory of the Son of God was to be put on display before the disciples, that they would acknowledge him as the glorious one, the uh, who has this unique role, that Jesus is unique 
and central in God's program. They were to have this experience so that they would uh, worship Jesus as God to be affirmed in their hearts that he is the one true God of the universe who is more glorious than Moses and Elijah, who is central to God's program. They were to go through this experience that they would be, uh, just, just think more highly of Jesus Christ. And connected to that, I think the other point to highlight is that the purpose of the transfiguration here was to confirm the disciples' role truly as disciples, learners, listeners of Jesus. Notice that the voice coming from the cloud emphasizes that with this command. Listen to him. They are to listen to Jesus Christ. He is their authority. He's not a a suggestion machine. He truly is master. Peter calls him master. Well, God still sees fit to tell him, listen to him. So Peter is to press in to that belief that Jesus is master and truly listen to him in all things because he is the glorious son of God. He is the one who has been in glory with the Father from all eternity. And so they are to listen to him. He is central to God's program. They are to listen to him. He is a ministry that's greater than Moses and Elijah. They are to listen to him. He is the one who is going to suffer and die. They are to listen to him. They are the ones who are sent out by him. They are to listen to him. All that they do in life is to be based on listening to Jesus. So as we wrap this up and land the plane and and dwell on what we can take away today, some 2,000 years later, I think the question should be, do you listen to him? I think that's an appropriate application question. Uh, Does this reality of who Jesus is drive your life, drive your spiritual life, your religious thinking, your religious decisions? Do you listen to him? Do you view him as authority? Do you take his words and submit yourself to those words that we have preserved in the Bible, that he is the glorious, eternal Son of God? Do you embrace that, that he's the one true God of the universe, that he is not a creature, but he is the creator? Do you see this event in your mind's eye, and does it drive you to worship Jesus more and more above any so-called gods? and understand that he is equal with the Father in glory and majesty, all power and authority? Is that where your mind is? Because that's where your mind should be. That's the purpose of the transfiguration. That was the purpose for Peter, James, and John. That's the purpose of it being preserved in three of the four Gospels for us today, is that we would grasp the reality of who Jesus is, and it would affect, impact have influence over every single area of our lives. Um, That's what the result should be. Okay? What an amazing story. So much to see and consider every time I do one of these, and uh, I am such an imperfect conduit for bringing you truth, but I trust that the Lord will use it. And uh, I'm blessed every time I do a Bible study. uh, That includes these. 
And so I hope you're blessed too. Thanks for joining me today. Next week, we will get into Luke 11 as Jesus rebukes the religious Pharisees of his day. So that should be a, uh, a good conversation for us. And then after that, we will go to Matthew chapter 13 and talk about parables, the purpose of parables, and we'll even look at one or two of them, okay? Thanks for joining me, and God bless.